Hello and welcome to the Worcester Talking Magazine for November. Uh, I'm Barry and with me today are... Alan and Kate. Thank you. What have you been doing recently? Anything exciting been happening? I've been taking my jabs and being resolutely antisocial. As usual. (laughs) (laughs) What about you, Kate? Anything? Oh, yes, we went to the... uh... I went to the uh, Albert Hall... For the at the weekend yes. to the uh, classical spectacular Absolutely. concert, which was absolutely wonderful, yeah. um, and we even managed to get into Harrods, where I bought a bar of chocolate for three pounds <laughs> fifty, which uh, was cheap for Harrods. And we got a Harrods <laughs> bag, oh. five pounds. <laughs> you just get Harrods. <laughs> anyway, enough of that. Um, sadly, Brian, who's normally our fourth member is uh, still unwell and unable to be with us. But um, he's, uh, you know, getting better now. He's on mm, the mend. Definitely. Oh, good. And um, hopefully, with a bit of luck, he'll be here for our uh, first magazine in the new year. We'd like to say thank you, of course, to Carol Hartle, who's the backbone of the whole thing behind uh, behind the scenes with um, making sure the USB sticks get to you and... Uh, Oh, she just looks after us, basically. And so, round of applause for Carol, please. Thank you, Carol. Hope you have a lovely Christmas. And anybody else, you know, thank you to everybody else that lends a hand doing one thing and another for us that keeps the whole thing staggering along in its normal, efficient way. Right. Um, What have we got today? Right, I think uh, Kate starts off with um, a story about political correctness and... um, has political correctness gone too far? <laughs> I think it has. Right. Yeah, I do too. <laughs> uh, this is about British Airways. They have dropped the phrase ladies and gentlemen in announcements in a bid to make all customers feel welcome. Pilots and cabin crew are believed to have, told to, have been told to use more inclusive language to refer to passengers. The move is driven by a change in customers. The Sunday Telegraph reports that a spokesman for BA said, we celebrate diversity and inclusion and we're committed to ensuring that all our customers feel welcome when travelling with us. They also said the airline was committed to using inclusive language that makes all our customers feel welcome and had been using inclusive language at the airport for over a year. British Airways is not the first airline to switch to using more inclusive language. Air Canada has become the first major airline to use gender-neutral greetings back in October 2019, adopting the term everyone in place of ladies and gentlemen. It was followed by Japan Airlines and later Lufthansa, which in July this year committed to eliminating gender-specific references using phrases such as dear guests. In their place. Last month, Air Malta also announced it would adopt gender neutral language. In 2017, the Transport for London abandoned the term ladies and gentlemen in favour of inclusive greetings such as good morning, everyone. Alan, I believe you've got something about political correctness as well. Um, well, I've got. Um, <laughs> yes, I suppose it is. <laughs> it, it's so different from what I was used to when I was at school. But anyway, the school has banned teachers from using the words good and bad when describing pupil behaviour in a bid to take the emotional heat out of managing discipline. 
Instead, teachers at Loughborough Amherst School, an independent school in Leicestershire for children aged 4 to 18, are asked to describe behaviour as skilful or unskilful. The idea is the brainchild of the school's headmaster, Julian Murphy, who said the approach was designed to take the emotional heat out of language by refraining from using emotional words. Dr Murphy said, While I don't want teachers to be soft, I also don't want them to be shouty and make pupils feel guilty. I think it's human psychology, even when you're an adult, if people make you feel guilty, then you get angry. And that's when you're likely to play the blame game and not to work that well. That's when things get into a bit of a vicious circle. He said his school taught children that there's a set of rules that are there for practical reasons. If you fall foul of those rules, don't worry about it. Just take your medicine and learn for next time. I'm not interested in making young people feel bad, he said. I'm just interested in them learning and us helping them mature and become more sensible people. Dr Murphy said he had taken the terms skilful and unskilful from Buddhism as a less loaded and more accurate way of describing things. You're not really angry with them. Your action is much more than one of concern because they're behaving in an extremely unskillful way which is going to negatively affect their life chances and possibly those of people around them. He said the change in language was not inspired by political correctness or because the school is trendy or progressive. Dr Murphy said, Loughborough Amherst is in fact quite a strict school with a cumulative behaviour policy designed to tackle low-level disruption. You can get expelled for handing in homework late if you do it enough times, he said. Well, well, well. Different to my day in school. Yeah, absolutely. Yes, quite. Right, some odd stories now. We've all got some odd stories. I hope we've all got some odd stories. Um, mine is, a cow wandered onto the M25 motorway recently after breaking through a fence and escaping its field. Surrey Police received a call from the public around 8.35am to say it was on the anti-clockwise uh, carriageway between junctions 5 and 6 near Godstone. Rush hour traffic was blocked while the farmer and traffic officers tried to convince the cow, reportedly called Daisy, to get a move on. <laughs> Did you say there, a move on? A move, a move yes, a move on. An interest traffic data journalist who saw the incident on cameras while working said, a cow jumped a fence and got onto the road just after nine. And about 10 police in total were at the scene. The police held traffic for about 20 minutes to try and catch it. <laughs> the road was reopened at 9.23, but <laughs> residual delays of around half an hour were reported afterwards. <laughs> she was just mooching around. <laughs> Adam, what have you got? <laughs> I've got one here which is... <coughs> I think it might depend on how I pronounce it or spell it out. A shop bans customers from paying with cash stashed in bras 
during heat waves. Michael Flynn has made it clear he will not be accepting bra money. A businessman divided opinion when he recently took a stand against bra money. Betting salesman Michael Flynn has become fed up with customers paying with cash that has been stashed in their bras as temperature soars to above 30 degrees C and presumably no other pockets. He sought to put an end to the unsanitary habit by issuing an urgent notice on a poster outside his store in Dublin. The note from Mattress Mick read, No bra money. I'll say that again. No bra money. Due to increasing temperatures and for our own personal safety, we will not be accepting any bra money. Sorry for any inconvenience. The mind boggles. (laughs) (laughs) I think... um I think actually you've got the next one as well. Cows being airlifted. You got cows being airlifted? Oh yes. Yes, of course. I, I, I read yeah. my cow one out of out of order. Yeah. The, the mooching around one should have come before that one. <laughs> so, uh, the <laughs> some cows in Switzerland have been airlifted to the bottom of their alpine meadows in a bizarre spectacle. Around ten of the animals were taken by helicopter off the ridges in the Clausen Pass region in the centre of the country. Using a mesh harness, the creatures were suspended by a length of cable below the chopper as they took to the skies. Waiting farmers used guide ropes to help bring the cows to land safely before moving them into more conventional trailers. Meanwhile, the more fit and able livestock made their way down the mountainside by hoof. Farmer Jonas Arnold said, One reason for the helicopter transport is that you can't reach some pastures by car, and the other is that some cows are injured, so they don't have to walk all the way down. He added, I didn't ask a cow how it feels after such a flight, as it couldn't answer, but it's only a short distance, and it has to keep going. It was a short, calm flight. I didn't notice any difference between the ones that flew and the ones that walked normally. In total, the herd numbers around about a thousand, so only one percent of the group were given some help getting down. They were heading to Unaboden in Switzerland and are gearing up for the annual cow parade there. It's um, something to think about, isn't it? A cow flying, <laughs> flying underneath there. They probably got quite snobby about it, you know. But I was, <laughs> we were the ones that flew here. <laughs> you had to walk. Mm-hmm. Kate, you got one about uh, squirrels, I believe. No, you haven't got that. Yeah, do the squirrel one. I like the squirrel one. It's good. Right. Police racing out to detangle seven baby squirrels tied together by their tails. Sure does sound a bit nuts. But that's exactly what officers in Michigan did after a 911 call last Friday. Cops found a scurry of young squirrels at the base of a tree after rushing to the scene in Grand Blanc. They grew so big their nest could no longer hold them and they fell on the ground. Cops said they separated the seven under the watchful eye of Mama Squirrel. A Facebook post from Grand Blanc Township Police Department used the hashtag crazy but true to describe the incident they wrote squirrel takes on a whole new meaning for officers 
Right, and we've got... Oh, this is a news story from Turkey. Uh, local media reported that Bayam Mutli, um, who lived in the uh, northwest Turkey of Bursa province, my Turkish is obviously not up to scratch, as was believed to be missing on Tuesday. He had wandered away from his friends in a forest while drunk. Best way to wander away from your friends if you're going to wander <laughs> away from your friends. According to the Daily Sabah website, his wife and friends reported him missing after they were unable to get in touch with him for several hours. Mr. Motlu, 50, later joined a group in the area who was helping the author- authorities search for him. So he, he joined the group group of people looking for him. <laughs> Anyway, <laughs> oh, I can't lost my place now. Uh, anyway, he uh, I, I can remember the story. He says they all began calling out, Mr. Molu, Mr. Molu. He said, Yes, I'm here. <laughs> the authorities then took his statement before driving him home. NTV reported it was unclear whether he faced any penalties. <laughs> <laughs> Can you imagine the stupidity of it? You know, you're all wandering around. Saying, hello, hello, yes, hello. <laughs> Stupid. Right, Kate, you have uh, a three-year-old who was the youngest person to reach the summit of a ten thousand oh, pounds, nice ten thousand feet mountain, and was rewarded for his efforts with some sweets. Jackson Holding, three, and his seven-year-old sister Freya made it to the top of the Piz Badil mountain, which sits on the border of Switzerland and Italy. They were led by their father Leo and mum Jess. Both children made history as Freya became the youngest person to climb the mountain unaided, while Jackson is the youngest to reach the top. The British family began their climb on the 25th of July, but broke it up over several days, spending one night in an alpine hut and another two in bio, no, bivucus shelters. Leo, who is a professional climber, said, My daughter climbed it all by herself all the way, including all the hiking and everything. It was very impressive. She's only just turned seven. My wife, Jess, carried Jackson, who weighs about 15 kilograms, on her back, and I carried all the camping equipment and food. We've done quite a bit in the UK and Europe in previous years, but every summer the kids are bigger and more capable than the past year. He added, Having your own children there, I was conscious that we were on a big adventure together, but I never felt that we were in an unacceptable position, and I never thought we were out of our depth. After the family finished the climb, Leo and Jess rewarded their children with sweets. Jackson said, it was really good. I enjoyed the bit I climbed on my own. And Freya added, I found it really fun and really scaring, but I'm very proud. The family's next climb will be a multi-day trek across the highest mountains of Montenegro. How old was the youngest one there? Three. Three? Yeah. Mm. Climbing a mountain on, on his mother's back. Mother's back. He, d- he, <laughs> d- he did say he did a bit of walking on his own, so he was obviously proud of that. Yeah, it's a bit, uh, you know. I mean, it's it's funny, it's nice, but it's it could be quite yeah. dangerous, couldn't it? Very. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, it's another odd story, really. Alan, you've got one about. I got one about an alligator. An alligator. 
Or is it a crocodile? <laughs> the, the headline is, Woman attacked by alligator says, I love him and he shouldn't face any consequences. Yeah, okay, right. <laughs> an animal handler attacked by an alligator as crying children looked on has said she loves the reptile and that it shouldn't face any consequences. Lindsay Bull was left wrestling with the creature after it clamped its jaws down on her hand in front of guests during a child's birthday party at Scales and Tails in Salt Lake City, Utah. She was eventually rescued from the alligator, called Darth Gator, after visitor Donny Wiseman leapt into the water and clambered on top of the animal. Videos of the incident were viewed by millions online, but Miss Bull and the Reptile Centre's owner said it shouldn't come to any harm as a result of the attack. Miss Bull, who avoided losing her limb after undergoing surgery, said, We're going to fight as long as we can to keep him. As long as he's in our care, and it is our choice, no consequences are going to happen to him. He was just doing what an animal does. She told Utah's Desert News that she had worked with Darth Gator for more than three years, and that he'd been trained to respond to command, including to allow her to kiss him on the face. Oh, I love him. He's like a member of my family, she said. That's true of everybody who works there. Everybody loves Darth. Well, oh. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, if you get bitten by an alligator, whether you like it or not, you're not going to have much love for it after it's taken... What did it take? Fingers, wasn't it? Uh, it got a hand caught in his mouth. Yes, well, yeah. his, his mouth caught a hand. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's, um, yeah, I don't know. I suppose even an alligator gets lovable over years. Yeah, and other mm. than that, they can make some nice shoes. <laughs> <laughs> right. This is quite sad, actually. A wild white stag has been shot dead by police after it was seen running around a residential roads in Bo- near Liverpool. Merseyside police said they received many calls from people who had seemed, who'd seen the animal on the streets on Sunday morning. An NHS worker called Paula told the Liverpool Echo, I was on my way to work at the Royal this morning. As I came over the flyover in Seaforth, there was a police car at the lights at the top of Nosley Road. And as the officer approached, off it ran towards Bootle. It must have been quite scared, and I generally have no idea where it was from. Police said there were concerns for the safety of motorists as the deer dashed across the road and became distressed. They said the animal was able to be secured on an industrial estate where a vet could monitor its welfare, but alas, it had to be shot dead at the end. Oh, it's sad, isn't it? It's sad, yeah. Mm-hmm. Let's, let's stag like that. Who's got the next one? What have you got then, Kat? I've got some local stuff now. Yeah, go on, have some local stuff. Which one you got? Got the lockdown postie. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A cheery postman puts smiles on residents' faces by delivering the post in full fancy dress during the first lockdown in May. Droitwich postie Brandon Clark turned up to work as Captain Jack Sparrow from Pirates of the Caribbean, the genie from Aladdin, and even a hot dog. 
Carol Brady from the Westlands Estate in Droitwich, where Brandon delivered post, said her postie made everyone's day. He dresses up each day in different costumes to bring a little cheer to what is a difficult time for many, she said. The children and the grown-ups look out for him from Monday to Friday to see who is delivering letters on that particular day. <laughs> Alan, you got an odd story as well, haven't you? A local story? i got a local story about uh, a solution to COVID in Ulster Cafe. The cafe boss's bright idea to use shower curtains to protect his customer from coronavirus made international news. During the first lockdown... Francini Osorio's wild and wacky idea to hang 35 clear plastic shower curtains at Francini Café de Colombia in Angel Place grabbed attention. It cost him £2,000, all designed to ensure his customers were as safe as possible. After featuring in the Worcester News, the invention went viral and reached an international audience, appearing on Fox News, Sky News and in the Times, Daily Mirror and The Telegraph. And it was even joked about on typical BBC One comedy show, Have I Got News For You in May. <laughs> There's one way of getting round it. Yeah, 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 yeah. There was a story about um, Worcestershire sauce, that uh, they had plenty of sauce but no bottles. They <laughs> 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 lost his bottle. <laughs> um, comedian David Bedell was left disappointed when he stopped off in Worcester for a meal. Uh, the star tweeted to say his meal at Yo Sushi wasn't up to much and joked it should be called No Sushi. The comedian had been performing at his show Trolls. Trolls? <laughs> Not the dolls at Huntington Hall when he stopped for a meal. The star known for his long-running partnership with Midlands comedian Frank Skinner, said, Intensely disappointed, distressed, pre-show gazooza at Yashushi in Worcester. I didn't eat them, and I... I won't say that word, but if it finish, starts with F and finishes with ing, eat everything normally. <laughs> what you got? Well, first of all, I would never be seen in a sushi restaurant. I don't like fish anyway, but no, raw, right. raw fish. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I suppose it's me. a bit iffy, isn't it? Um, no sushi for sushi. Oh. We've got a Ginny Lemon to make TV return. We'll read on and find out who Ginny Lemon is. December bought the fantastic news. Worcester's own Ginny Lemon will be back on our screens as one of the 12 queens competing to be crowned in the UK's next drag, next drag superstar on the second series of BBC Three's Drag Race UK. Um, You're struggling there, aren't you? <laughs> yeah. Ginny Lemon, 31, will be trying to impress RuPaul, but they have already faced a fearsome panel of judges, having made it to boot camp on The X Factor in 2017, after a very unique performance of Just a Little by Liberty X in the auditions. Ginny, who has the signature catchphrase, Fancy a slice, memorably burst onto TV screen saying, I'm from Worcester, just like the source, during auditions of that show. So that's who Jenny is. Right, and you've got Jackie. I've got Jackie Smith, Worcestershire's... Uh, 
MP. Worcestershire's Jackie Smith made a surprise appearance on Strictly Come Dancing in October last year. The former Home Secretary, who was born in Malvern, danced with partner Anton Dubeck and wowed audiences. But, sadly, Miss Smith, a former Redditch MP, only managed one week before she was escorted off the dance floor. The former Hagley school teacher also made an appearance on Pointless Celebrities with Ian Dale that month. The dynamic duo made it through to the final, but didn't get the pointless answer they needed to bag the jackpot. Miss Smith, however, still went home with £500 for her chosen charity, and that was the Joe Cox Foundation, so very worthwhile. Mm. UFO sightings. UFO. Unknown flying objects. Unidentified, uh, unidentified flying, flying, objects. flying objects, yes, of course. Have you ever seen a UFO? No. I thought I saw one once. I did, there was two yellow objects going through the sky quite high up, you know, and they were sort of more or less in, um, oh, I don't know what you could, formation, I suppose, if two things can be in formation. Yeah. They were going above, and I was sort of watching them go, and suddenly they sort of turned off and as if they were sort of coming down towards the earth very quickly. And I thought afterwards, you know, the, the answer to this was Chinese lanterns. I thought, the, you know, if yeah. you're not going to sort of think, ah, they're UFOs, then the this was before they... I think they banned Chinese lanterns mm. in the end, didn't yeah. they? Yeah, quite so, rightly. Yeah, yeah, they were a bit yeah. dangerous. But, you know, they were quite, quite weird when you had a drink or two and, <laughs> <laughs> and you look out the window and see these things floating about out there. Hey, what's that? Anyway, UFO sightings. In September, we revealed that dozens of reports of UFO sightings in the county had been revealed in previous confidential government files. The files showed 21 reports of unidentified flying objects, probably Chinese lanterns, made by county residents between 1997 and 2009. Reports made in Worcester, or Worcestershire should be, shouldn't it, surely, involved teddy bear-shaped objects, moon-sized balloons, the moons of balloon, and red and yellow stars. And in one report in Worcester in August 1997, a UFO the size of an aircraft. Now, I wonder <laughs> if the UFO was the size of an aircraft, do you think it could possibly have been an, an aircraft? aircraft. <laughs> <laughs> was spotted travelling across the speed at huge speed. The Ministry of Defence stopped taking UFO reports after December 2009, stating, in more than 50 years, no sighting report to the department has indicated the existence of any military threat to the UK. Well, there you are. No, so yeah. it's very disappointing, actually, because, you know, it, it's hoped. <laughs> well, I, I was on holiday a few years ago in the States, and... Around um, Yosemite. And <laughs> I saw, we, we were just coming off, off the, out of the hills, and I saw this cloud formation. And if you, with a bit of imagination and perhaps a drink, <laughs> you could have said it was a flying saucer. Mm. It, was, it was quite oval but flattened and had a little round cloud on the top of it. I took a photograph oh, of it, oh. and I still got it. And I, I think to myself, yeah, somebody could look at that and say, oh, I've seen a flying saucer. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. We're oh, in, nice. um, in America. There, there's a place, isn't there, in America where they reckon one crashed and they found 
um, the remains of aliens. Oh, I, I used to know the name. As I got older, my memory has got shocking. But, but um, anyway... Oh, couldn't you remember? No, couldn't remember. Okay. No, 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 no. But uh, I mean, it's been supposed to be in a military secret in America for years, you know, and they've yeah. made sort of documentaries about it and things like that. But um, what, what have you got, Kate? I've got a, about a music teacher from Pershaw who stole the nation's heart with his can do attitude and fun on screen presence during a, an appearance on Great British Bake Off in September. But sadly, during Bread Week, Rowan Williams became the third amateur baker to be eliminated from the show. In a comedy put-down, Paul Hollywood described Rowan's soda bread as like eating lemon drizzle cake in a sandstorm. Oh, God. (laughs) (laughs) And his tree-shaped showstopper, inspired by the black pears of Worcestershire, was dubbed all style and no substance. Oh, I think that's a bit rude. <laughs> I've had a wonderful time, he said. It is exhausting but very rewarding. And then he left the tent. Do you like that programme? Does anyone like that? Oh, do you know? I mean, I, I'm not a big there, lover of it. There's so many no. programmes on television now about cooking. I and very rarely watch any of them. No, no. I, I, I'm I'm just long, got a long no. time ago, there was a programme, Ready Steady Cook. Not Ready Steady Cook. It was about. Um, you know, you had three or four ingredients. You had to do something oh. in 20 minutes. And mm. I, I used to quite cook, you know, when I was living on my own or with, you know, when I was bringing up a couple of kids. I used to sort of think, you know, something you can cook in 20 minutes is a reasonable idea. But yeah, uh, yeah. that's about the only thing I've ever watched, you know, and yeah. they, you know, sadly took it off. Anyway, I've got Zoom Boomers. This is another local story. By September... The world was familiar with Zoom. Do you use Zoom? Yeah, yeah, it's very good, isn't it? I like Zoom. Uh, You know, if you don't know what Zoom is, it's uh, you can um, set your computer so that uh, you can join in conversations with people around the world, as many people as you like. You can pack onto the screen and and you can have a really good talk talk with them, or you can listen to music or whatever. It's it's quite a good system. Anyway. uh, teams and house parties with many meetings getting together regularly being held on the platforms. But uh, that month, churchgoers from Worcester Diocese had a bizarre and unpleasant experience when their online Zoom meeting was infiltrated by hackers. Zoom boomers joined the virtual meeting without an invite and shared some offensive and disturbing content. <laughs> <laughs> How fair. Uh, yes, that's not fair. On both their profile pictures and in the chat, it led to the diocese increasing their security and the incident was reported to the police. <laughs> that's a bit unfair, isn't it? I mean, you know, hackers, uh, you know. What do you got, Alan? Uh, I've got a... This is a peculiar one, really. A troll doll warning. A concerned Worcester mum warned parents about a children's toy that she said made sex noises <laughs> in August. I don't, I don't know whether Only August in is... August. <laughs> yeah, why, why August? But the Hasbro <laughs> Trolls doll was recalled after a video of the toy making gasping and giggling sounds when a button between its legs is pushed. It went viral. The sounds went viral, I think. <laughs> Linda Solway, a mother from Worcester, saw the video and wanted parents to be aware of the issue, adding, Big brand names should not put profit before protection. A spokesman for the US company, Julie Duffy, 
issued a statement to the Providence Journal and apologised to parents, saying, We are happy to provide consumers with a replacement poppy doll. I've no idea what a poppy doll is at all. No, I don't know what a poppy doll is. Sounds altogether well, better than that one, anyway, doesn't it? Uh, well, mind you, if it's got a button <coughs> between its legs, it does sort of point to the idea that it might well, be a bit rude. Yeah. yeah well, but, I mean, it's my, my, my second thought is, <laughs> I wonder how many dolls were actually exchanged. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh, no, it's, it's saying, because, I mean, obviously they made us kids' toys. One would have thought. Yeah. But depending yeah. on what type of shop you bought it from. Mm. No. Well, there's the experience. The shop. The shop. Anyway, uh, this one's uh, about the commandery. Steeped in history, the commandery is a beautiful city centre building with an incredible 800-year history. It seems like this reviewer, who did try the cafe, might have missed out. Um, the commandery was where uh, Worcester Talking News had its 40th anniversary. And it had been a beautiful summer, and we had a marquee there and in the commandery gardens, yeah? And it was all set for a lovely outdoor occasion. And it was the only day for a long, long time <laughs> that absolutely tipped down. <laughs> and all the people from Worcester newspaper and visitors that came had to pack into this tiny marquee... <laughs> It was absolutely face-to-face, -face. although it was possible if they wanted to, they could have come to the offices. But very few did, strangely. Mm -hmm. I think the reason for that, the bar, <laughs> was in the marquee. The bar? The bar. <laughs> the bar was in the marquee. Anyway, there you are. Anyway, the commandery, steeped in history, the commandery is a beautiful city centre building with an incredible 80, 800 years history. It seems like this reviewer who did try the cafe might have missed out on, and this is what they said, didn't have the opportunity to fit the museum in, but we'll try next time. Why make a comment at all? You know, I mean, these are the sort of comments you can get on the, the, the internet nowadays, isn't it? Yeah. The, the next reviewer was, um, hopefully... Uh, the, the reenactment event was not run into by this fabled commandery ghost. There was a uh, obviously this person that made this next review had no idea what the commandery was or what it was all about. There are far too many people dressed in random period costumes, even World War One, who seem to hang around chatting amongst themselves like a private club. Mm. <laughs> Well, thank you very much for that review. You know, I'd sort of yeah. like to pass it on. And this was one about the Malvern Hills. Um, the glorious Malvern Hills inspired to inspiration to composers, artists, writers, a place of natural beauty. This reviewer warns the Malvern Hills are very hilly. <laughs> <laughs> OK, what you got? Oh, well, Sir Edward Elgar found the Malvern Hills absolutely... <laughs> <clears throat> wonderful and composed some wonderful, wonderful music there. Um, so um, his statue in Worcester um, is there up by the cathedral. Uh, and here's another review or a comment coming coming from Worcester. It is not somewhat somewhere that immediately pops to mind when I think of tourist destinations. Perhaps that explains this underwhelming review. It was a statue. I almost missed it as it didn't stand out. 
This TripAdvisor reviewer at last attempted to share a bit of knowledge about the statue. Not much to say other than it's a nice statue of Algar. He has changed a bit over the years. It has a plinth around it at the moment and sometimes it's got bird poo on it and sometimes it's got a traffic cone hat. (laughs) End of story. (laughs) Well, continuing on the TripAdvisor's route... Uh, TripAdvisor's comments about Worcestershire and Worcester Cathedral in particular. Worcester Cathedral is a majestic jewel in the city's crown, rising above the skyline in a feat of architectural wonder. Well, to most people. This person thought it was just a big church. If you've never seen a cathedral, this is a nice one. It's a big church, really. Nice and big and churchy. This person seems surprised they couldn't wander up and down the aisles during a wedding. They say, don't visit if a wedding is being held, as at least one half of the cathedral will be off limits to you for at least an hour. Though it was what was going on outside the cathedral, and out of control of cathedral staff, which left this person giving a bad review. Shame, as the cathedral itself is nice but the area surrounding isn't peaceful. If you want to dodge rowdy boys on scooters and bikes, then this is the place for you. I don't know know why people write stuff like that. Oh, no, it's dark, isn't it? It's not constructive, is it? Well, not really, no. They've got nothing better to do. Well, exactly. Yeah, anyway, there we go. What have we got? Uh, Oh, right, okay. Anyway, this is about the snuggly duckling. In 2019, 33-year-old Betsy Ross was in the park in Vasilla, California, where her family went. They found a Muscovy duck nest. All the eggs were smashed except one, which Rosie's children begged her to save. On instinct, she popped it into a sports another bra story <laughs> into a sports bra to keep it safe. After some research, Rose decided her best option was to leave the egg pressed against her body. She nestled it for more than 30 days, placing baggies of warm water on her chest to raise the incubation temperature. Eventually, the duck began to peep, and after a difficult hatching, it survived. The bird bonded with Rosie, so she fashioned a career for it out of... A cap- I do beg your pardon. She fashioned a carrier for it out of a headband, but she since moved the duck to a farm. He needed a place where he would be happy, she says. Ah, oh, oh. I wish I could read. <laughs> <laughs> right, Kate, what you got? I've got hole in one. Marianne Wakefield, 84, became the unlikely star of a University of Mississippi basketball game in February when she was selected to participate in an entertainment break competition. The objective? To sink a putt the entire length of the basketball court in order to win a new sedan. Wakefield couldn't see the ball once it rolled past the halfway line, but she heard the excited screams of the crowd when it hit the mark. No one was more surprised than Wakefield. She admitted that she's always been a great she's always been great at driving the ball, but hopeless on the putting green. 
<laughs> so that was rather good, wasn't it? At 84, pretty yeah, good. good. Um, Alan, you've got something, haven't you? Uh, I quite like this one. It's called, oh, a, no, so it's called a midnight snack. <laughs> <laughs> it, it appeals to my rather warped sense of humour. <laughs> the dream was like something out of a spy thriller. 29-year-old Jenna Howell of San Diego, California, was running from some shady characters on a high-speed train and her fiancé told her to hide her engagement ring fast. Howell popped off the ring and swallowed it. She woke suddenly and re- realised that it was just a dream, so quickly dozed off again. But the next morning, she noticed her left hand was bare. After a trip to the emergency room and an x-ray, this confirmed that Howell really had downed the diamond in her sleep. Doctors fished it out via endoscopy. Howell praised the ring's designer for crafting jewels so lovely you could eat them. But don't, trust me. <laughs> oh, it's surprising what you're doing in your sleep, isn't it? Um, this is the big upgrade. An overlooked painting called Portrait of a Young Woman hung in the Allentown Arts Museum in Pennsylvania for decades. The painting was thought to be the work of an unknown artist in Dutch Masters Rembrandt's workshop. Then, two years ago, it was sent to New York University for conservation and cleaning, where conservators realised that the painting uh, was obscured by thick varnish using x-ray they looked into it (laughs) Uh, they noticed that the strokes were consistent with the Dutch master's work outside experts later confirmed it was an authentic Rembrandt the Allentown Art Museum vault is now potentially worth 10 10 millions more than it was previously all because the suspected student became the literal master (laughs) <laughs> I don't, you know, have you got any pictures knocking around? <laughs> it's amazing how much money is yeah. available to spend on art. art. I mean, mm. there was, what was it, Amy Winehouse's dress um, oh. was auctioned recently, and that was, what, a quarter of a million or something? Yeah. And, and um, sort of the odds and ends that, that belong, you know, like, you know, you get a pen that belonged to somebody that could go for thousands, don't they? Yeah. I mean, I just well, I suppose people have got so much money they don't know what to do with it, and also from the point of view of memory. Now, Kate's got the Beatles autographs. If anyone's interested, I have. Indeed, she did. She got them. Well, you went to watch them in. Uh, I saw them in Worcester when they came, way way back in the sixties, and uh, <coughs> I, uh, uh, like a lot of people. Um, we went round in those days. You went to the stage door at the back of the uh, the cinema or, or theatre cinema stroke cinema, and they came down to say how do you do to everyone. They weren't top of the bill. Uh, Roy Orbison was top of the bill, uh, but anyway, the Beatles came down and said hello to all, to various people that were there, and we all got their autographs, which I still have. So uh, I'm not quite sure what to do with them or who to sell them to if I could or or anything, but um, it's quite a treasure to have. I've got various other people that came to Worcester at the time when we had lots of people that they used to do. Um, Some of you will remember that they did package tours to Worcester with lots of famous people at the time and um, 
many, many uh, people um, came here that went on to be very famous and many people came here that were actually, you know, on the way up to being very, very famous indeed. So, it, uh, yeah, it was good in my old school days. Anyway, these this is another story here. Uh, Stephen Mills, a machinist and welder from Fort McMurray, Alberta, unwittingly solved a decade-old mystery when he visited Alberta's Vermilion Heritage Museum last May. In the basement sat a £2,000 sealed safe, which had been donated in the 1990s. Everyone from professional locksmiths to the safe manufacturer had unsuccessfully tried to crack the combo. After a tour guide told him the tale, Mills jokingly spun the dial in a random combination. 20, 40, 60. Three times right, two times left and one time to the right. To everyone's surprise, the door creaked open. Sadly, there were no gold bars or precious jewels inside, just a few papers from a waitress's order book dated 1977 and a pay sheet from around for around £9.95 from 1978. Solving the 40-year mystery, though, was priceless. And that was um, that, that sort of tongue-in-cheek, but uh, that was rather, rather you know... <laughs> 20, 40, <laughs> All these people that had gone there to see it and do and yeah. try their luck, and uh, and then it, there you go, a few I, bits of paper inside. I remember the, uh, what was it, uh, 38, 24, 36? <laughs> mm. <laughs> or was it... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> anyway. 36, 24, 36. <laughs> Alan, you brought some story, or you brought a story of your own, please. Yes, it's... It's sort of a personal one, really. It's thoughts on getting older. <laughs> we all know that. What happens to all of us, without exception, throughout our lives? <clears throat> we all get older. No one is exempt. So let's look at this phenomenon and try and work out how it happens. How do we get old and how do we measure it? As a youngster, we know that nice things happen once a year and we get to eat cake, get presents, wear a colourful badge which says three, or perhaps four. Does it go downhill from there? No, of course not. We quickly realise that this particular day brings forth presents, and with a little, not-so-subtle hint, we end up with something that totally occupies our life for at least three and a half days. (laughs) Life goes on. Birthdays come round with monotonous regularity. We get married, perhaps more than once. We survive upsets and trauma. We watch our children grow up. And then one day, someone asks the innocent question, How old are you now, Alan? You reply rather matter-of-factly. And then, within a few seconds, think, Whoa, how the hell did I get to this stage without noticing it? Where have all those years gone? Damn it, I'll be retiring in two more years. Quite suddenly, the word old takes on a new meaning. You then remember a story regarding three friends from a local church who were asked, when you were lying in your casket and friends and congregation members are mourning over you, what would you like them to say? Arthur said, I would like them to say, I was a wonderful husband, a fine spiritual leader and a great family man. 
Basil commented, I think I'd like them to say I was a wonderful teacher and servant of God who made a huge difference to people's lives. Patrick said, I'd like him to say, look, he's still moving. (laughs) (laughs) Wonderful. A visit to your GP or hospital with an ache that you've had for a couple of months doesn't turn out well. Not that it's going to be deadly serious, but now becomes age-related. And this translates as, take two aspirin and put up with it. Now I suggest that this is where you start to feel old. Or to express it another way, your actual age is just a meaningless number. Talking about numbers, shall we have a look at some statistics and get some sort of perspective on this? Our worldwide population of over 60s has tripled since 1950. In 2000, that figure was 600 million. In 2006, the total is now 700 million. I looked at that figure and wondered how it related to the UK. The figure that came up on the screen was... 68,355,673 I thought to myself how on earth can they be so accurate the next line answered my query the count was done on Wednesday October the 27th 2021 so that's me told I have some more pertinent figures for you but let me digress and tell you why I thought I might be qualified to talk about ageing. I was born in 1931, so if you don't have your calculator handy, this makes me 90 years of age. A few days after my birthday, someone asked me how I felt on becoming 90. Surprised, was my reply. (laughs) In the last few years, I've lost friends, relatives, who have, as my old dad would have said, fallen off the perch. Why them? Why not me? I believe that part of the answer is to choose your parents wisely. (laughs) Keeping fit on a regular basis is also an important part of the equation. And fitness has always been a part of my lifestyle. I've taken part and enjoyed running, caving, fencing, basketball, walking and climbing. But my principal activity has been cycling especially the competitive side. My last spell of racing began when I was in my 60s, winning national championship medals in my 70s, and at 76 I rode 25 miles in one hour, one minute and 57 seconds. I stopped racing when I was 82, with only slight regret, but strangely enough, I missed the routine of daily training. My hints on lifestyle would mirror current thinking, sensible eating and regular exercise. I should add, though, that if you are of retirement age, then you might wish to reconsider the Saturday morning football. How about looking at a few more numbers from the UK? Over 65, 12 million. Over 75, 5.4 million. Over 85... 1.6 million. Over 90, 
540,000. Over 100, 14,430. Good Lord. Now, it seems that being in the 0.7% of the population might be considered an asset in the so-called celebrity stakes. But when you look at the figures, it's a rapidly shrinking sector. There are, of course, quite a few disadvantages that comes with ageing, like not being able to unscrew lids on jars, <laughs> or if I can't hear the TV properly, or listening to a phone call without putting it on speaker. But one of the current annoyances, for me, is trying to wear hearing aids plus spectacles and a COVID mask without losing the hearing aid when you take the mask off. <laughs> and then failing to find the earpiece because your glasses came off as well. <laughs> a friend of mine related the tale of his mother who visited the supermarket and on leaving took off her mask and managed to lose the hearing aid. But she only realised when she got home. Now being fairly streetwise, she had an app on her phone which located the earpiece just inside the supermarket entrance. <laughs> she drove back and started to look round just inside the doors, but with no result. On checking the phone, it was situating the lost property just outside. Thinking she had misread the screen, she hastened outside to continue her search, with the same result. This happened several more times, inside, back outside, until it was found, wedged into one of the shopping trollers. <laughs> Gracious me. Well, she was lucky to find True story. Wasn't she? My own experience of age discrimination happened a couple of years ago in my favourite coffee bar. <coughs> I ordered my usual small mocha and a scone with butter and waited for service. Now, this was just after a government ban on selling knives to underage people had been announced. So the coffee and scone appeared in front of me and the hesitant young man asked, if I wanted a knife. Now, thinking it would be more efficient than using my finger to spread the butter, I said, yes, please. The young man still clutched the knife, looked at me and then said, are you over 18, sir? <laughs> I could have come up with a sarcastic comment, but just said, does this face look like a teenager? <laughs> Despite the aggravating petty, petty annoyances which go with this age, I sometimes remind myself that Maurice Chevalier once said, growing old is not so bad when you consider the alternative. <laughs> <laughs> See you all down at the pub. That's very good. Lovely, very good. Alan, lovely. And uh, Jane, you've got one of your own stories here, haven't you? Yeah, this isn't a, a funny one, but uh, it's about local history that may uh, bring back some memories of people um, in the past. This is about the public hall. Many of you may remember this. It was the this was the building in the corn market, and it was built on the north side of the piazza, on the side of the old wheat sheaf inn. It had two halls, the large one being ninety seven feet long and forty foot broad, and forty foot high, and was one of the best lighted in the kingdom, having a dome which later was destroyed by fire. It cost £7,000 in £10 shares and falling in its, failing in its purpose was sold for 1710 as a music hall. 
1875, William Laslett sold the building to the corporation for £2,200. For years, the hall had a chequered career. It was used for Saturday penny readings, at which Harry Day was the chief attraction. Charles Dickens twice came to read his own books, once in 1867 to read Christmas Carol, and again in 1867 to read Dr Marigold and the trial from the Pickwick Papers. Here, Mark Lennon interpreted Falstaff, Sims Reeves, the great Worcester tenor sang My Pretty Jane, and Sousa, with his remarkable band of exhibitionists, gave a farewell performance here. Here too, Jenny Lind sang to raise funds for the chapel at the Worcestershire Royal Infirmary. Dvorak conducted his own work, Stabat Mater and Elgar his symphonies and the Dream of Gerontius. To, to many, the hall was remembered for the music of the Festival Choral Society with Ivor Atkins conducting the London Symphony Orchestra with Edgar Day on the powerful organ. For the Sunday night military band concerts or the secondary school prize distribution, musical items under the baton of Miss Lillian Tyres. There was entertainment of other kind in the Bijou Minstrels with Tom Thumb and Cherry Curtin's Wildlife Lantern Lectures and the coming of the bioscope with the advertisement claiming no rain. By the 1890s, the building had become known as the Public Hall and was the principal hall used for electioneering. In the days before radio and television, when public meetings were an important part of the campaign, each party tried to secure the hall for the vital eve of poll meeting. During the 1939-45 war, the building was used as a British restaurant where comparatively good meals were available to help out the meagre civilian rations. The WVS also ran a welcome club in the evenings with on a Saturday night a 15-minute epilogue. After the war, the hall had many uses and was called the Majestic. It was eventually demolished in 1966 to make yet another space for cars. Its demolition completely spoilt the enclosed and intimate piazza of the corn market. And... Um, you, any of you know who knew that area know that not far away was the Blockhouse, which was a very, very um, heavily populated area. Um, and there was a school and a church. Uh, St Paul's Church was there, which is still standing. Uh, and uh, it, it's now right against the City Walls Road. It's the area just the other side of the City Walls Road from the town. The blockhouse was the immediate area outside the city walls on the east and was part of the liberties of the city. It was a network of ditches more, much like Sedgemoor. Even in the 1850s one remained with its path along known as Withy Walk and now St Paul Street, which that is still there. In the Civil War the city walls were long and low at this point for it was only necessary to dam Frogmill Stream to convert the whole area into a morass. At the Battle of Worcester in 1651, some of the Scots horsemen camped in the area, roughly along the present line of the canal as far as Lowesmoor, thus screening the walls and protecting a line of retreat, while Cromwell occupied all the high ground from Ronxwood to Red Hill, but there was little fighting done here. In 1246, the king gave the friars permission to have a postern gate in the town wall to give access to their burial ground and the church. This came to be known as Friars Gate. In 
1820, a new road was construct- constructed from Friarsgate to the blockhouse called Union Street and it marked a distinct stage in the growth of Worcester on the east. For up to that time, the city had been hermetically, hermetically sealed as regards ordinary vehicular traffic by the city walls, although the old postern Friarsgate gave limited access to the blockhouse fields. It allowed the area to be built on and it fixes the date of the blockhouse district as a residential area. Most of the fields belong to the corporation, subject to lease for 41 years, renewable every 14 years. The district was laid out, according to the Times, as a garden shrub and in comparison with the dark and narrow courts within the walls, well deserved the title. In the 1860s, it still contained pretty gardens, some large size, and even paddocks, but these gradually fell to prey to the speculative builders and in the suburb became undistinguished from the crowded areas of the old city. The principal street, Carden Street, was named after a venerable member of the corporation, Alderman Thomas Carden, who was a mayor in 1790. He lived to a great age and his portrait, which is said to be lifelike, hangs in the Guildhall to this day. His son, who lived in Fulgate Street, became famous as a surgeon. And the um, this is just a little bit about Silver Street Infirmary, which also ran along where the City Walls Road is now and the parts of Silver Street are still there. They have a preservation order on. And the Worcester Medical um, Association was founded there. The BMA was founded there. Bishop Isaac Maddox and Dr John Wall were interested in providing Worcester with an infirmary. They looked to other infirmaries founded in the 1700s, like Bristol and Northampton, which were financed by voluntary donations to provide care for the respectable poor. They bought out the tenants of 18 Silver Street to open their own voluntary hospital on January the 11th, 1746. And there is a plaque uh, above that house now to go and see. The first patients were welcomed by staff, including Thomas Bourne, the apothecary, the physicians Dr. Wall, Dr. Atwood, Dr. Mackenzie and Dr. Cameron. Nothing to do with the television. The matron, Mrs. White, Nurse Goslin and the maidservant, Patience Perry. The surgeons included Mr. Edwards and Mr. Russell. Very soon, the entire row of houses was taken over to provide a hot bath, a mortuary, a meeting room and space for 50 beds. In 1751, 191 inpatients and 325 outpatients were treated and with developments in medicine and surgery, along with a growing population, Worcester soon needed a new hospital. In 1765, the governors erected an infirmary in Castle Street, which many of you will know. And then there's a picture of the wooden operating chair, which was used at the infirmary in Silver Street. Um, And uh, at the time, the surgeons lacked the knowledge required to perform complicated or internal surgeries, so amputation of a limb could be the only way to save a patient's life. Also, anaesthetics had not yet been introduced, so straps were fed through the holes in the chair's back and legs to hold the screaming patient down. More up to date now, you can visit the George Marshall Medical Museum, 
which is at the new hospital, and see if you can spot the scratch marks at the front of the seat and at the very top of the chair back, because the seat is still there. Do you think these are from terrified patients' fingernails? They could also be from the surgeon's sharp knives. Who knows? Good God. <laughs> oh, thank God for the... Those were the days. 21st yeah, were. century. <laughs> oh, God. Incredibly. No, I mean... Do you know, the, after battles and things like that, they used to throw one soldier on after another yeah. and just cut their legs off, arms off, you know. Yeah. And Dipped it into hot tar. They, they got it down to about 20 seconds. They yeah. could amputate a leg in about 20 seconds. Yeah. It's incredible. Yeah. Did, you, did you note the reference, by the way, there to... We needed a hospital for the disreputable. No, for the reputable. Reputable. Yeah. Yes, that's yeah. right. Not, reputable not, if you've got VD, yeah. you've had it. Yes, you've got uh, <laughs> yeah. The, um, no, it always reminds me of the um, one of the soldiers, one of the officers, obviously, uh, at the Battle of Waterloo. He had his arm amputated, and and uh, he was conscious enough to say, "Oh, want the ring back." <laughs> 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 right now, actually, uh, we're going to do some questions for the quiz, mm-hmm. um, which um, we we'll do the usual routine, which I think is probably best. Is that I'm going to ask a question. And I'm going to leave two or three seconds. Then either Kate or Alan can see if they know the answers. If they don't, fine. But, you know, it be interesting to see. OK, the first question is, uh, hopefully these are not too hard. Who designed St Paul's Cathedral? Sir Christopher Wren. We'll leave one or two seconds so that you can think <laughs> about it. Yes, I know. Yeah. But leave a couple of <laughs> seconds for them to think about it at home. Yeah. OK. OK. Right, um, now, uh, for space freaks, who was the first American in space? Okay. Silence rules. <laughs> it's very quiet yeah, in sure. space. Eh? Hey, think of um, sheep. Nelly the sheep. No, <laughs> Nelly the sheep was not the first American in space. It was Alan Shepard. Oh, right. <laughs> <laughs> you asked for that. <laughs> a reasonably easy one. What's what? What's the first animal in the dictionary? Okay. No. Aardvark. Yes, you're right. Aardvark. Mm. Well, they're weird-looking things, aren't they? Yeah. They're really strange. Well, here's a fairly easy one. I think you'll get this one. Um, what is the most popular predator? Prejudice, prejudice. Oh God, no, I can't talk at all. Pedigree dog in this country. Da, 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 okay. What was the? I didn't. The most popular pedigree oh. dog in this country. Dachshund. Uh, no, no. Oh, I thought you'd get this one. Probably, probably a retriever. Uh, L. Golden begins retriever. with L. Oh. L. Lurcher. <laughs> Labrador. No, one like that. Well, yeah, no, fair enough. I, I don't see many people walking around with lurchers. <laughs> I, I don't have a dog, I have a oh, cat. Yes, I know you do. And it's such a beautiful cat it is. Do you know her, her cat? It's lovely. It's pure white and it's called Eccles. You know, uh, of course, Spike Milligan was one of her favourites. Right, I think we'll do, do a couple more and then we'll do something else and then we'll do a few more questions later on. 
Uh, oh, yeah, this one's in. Which European war ended in March 1939? Dick, dick, dick. Okay. Think of the Liberian Peninsula. Don't think of the Liberian Peninsula, though. Oh, sure. I should know that. One of our enemies during Queen Victoria, uh, Queen Elizabeth's time. Very big enemy. We used to go. And oh yeah, the um, yes, the one Spanish, <laughs> Spanish independent. No, uh, Spanish Civil War. Civil War. Yeah, yeah Spanish Civil War. And uh, uh, oh yes, the film uh, Titanic and Ben Hur won the same amount of Oscars. How many? Two, one. Okay. Guess? Four. Any more guesses? Bit more? Bit more than four. Six. No, more than six. No. A lot more. Nearly double the amount of six. Really? Yes. They won, uh, won apparently. Eleven. Yeah. Titanic and Ben-Hur won 11 Oscars. Oh, this is good. When did, in this country, when did parking meters first appear on the streets? <laughs> Um, you, okay, okay now. Yeah? 1958. Sorry, I nearly swore. <laughs> yes, you're dead right. <laughs> you're dead right. Yeah, yeah, you're dead right. Good Lord. Right, let's have something else now. Um, right, this is... Um, we're going to look at um, Britain's favourite fruit and vegetables. Okay, we can... Turn this into a bit of a quiz as well. Um, what is number one in the fruit and vegetable race <laughs> for top spot? <laughs> number one base of fruit. Banana. Nope. Grape. Nope. Apple. Nope. Strawberry. Yes, yes, the strawberry. <laughs> Followed by another one that you said, number two. Grape. Uh, no, you like them. You eat them. Pink. Pink. Lady. Oh, apples. Yeah, apples mm. are number two. And uh, next we have a vegetable. And in the third place, a vegetable. The <laughs> most popular vegetable in this country is... <laughs> Peas. <laughs> sort of largest thing that you can do in various ways. Mashed. Potato. Yes, the good old potato. Right. Yeah. Bananas came fourth. Fifth? Fifth, I'm quite surprised to be so low down, is mm. grapes, because I like grapes. Yeah. Of grapes can come in green and... What other colours grapes come in? Black. Black and, Black and, and red. And red, yeah. And onions, uh, sixth. And carrots. Uh, broccoli, which is extraordinarily good for you. I think um, broccoli and blueberries are the two best things for a diet, aren't they? I, I believe so. I looked at it. And, and peas, blueberries don't even come into this, and I love them. I think blueberries mm. are great. Mm. And peas uh, come ninth, and tomato, which, as we all know, is a... Fruit. Fruit, yes. Not a vegetable, comes tenth. So there you are, the Britain's favourite fruit and vegetables. So a tip for people who uh, may enjoy porridge, 
Buy some blueberries as well. Put your blueberries into your porridge before you cook it. Cook your por- cook your porridge in the microwave. Uh, it, this is just the better way of doing it. I know you may like to do it on the on the cooker, but if you can put it in your microwave, cook it with the blueberries in there, and it is absolutely wonderful. It's a real treat. Um, do, you, do you actually put the blueberries in, then cook it? You put the blueberries yeah, yeah, yeah. in the porridge mixture, right. and then you put it into the microwave and cook it, and it is wonderful. Really, right. really lovely. I'll um, try that. I, I like uh, porridge. I'll, t- yes. I'll tell you what, what I, I would add to that is honey. If you put honey in with the porridge and the blueberries yes. and honey, it is gorgeous. Depends if you're diabetic. Uh, yeah, well, if I'm you're diabetic. not diabetic, yeah. that's all right. <laughs> no, I, I am. Uh, you know, but I'm only type 2. Um, I don't have tablets or anything like that. I can look after myself. Um, but, yeah, a little bit of honey. And I relied on honey during the COVID period when I was looking after Kate, who was seriously ill with it. And I, I just thought a, a spoonful of honey a day because it's so good for you. Yeah. It's remarkably good for you. Anyway, this is um, about the 12 days of Christmas. We oh. probably... Don't... Oh. Uh. <laughs> we, we had this one in a pub quiz. Oh, did you? What was, <laughs> yeah, what, what I was it about? Didn't, didn't score very well on that <laughs> Well, no, no, this is, this is probably not what you had in a pub quiz. Um, this is the 12 days of Christmas and the... A Christian interpretation of each of the days. Ah, oh, yes. Yeah? yeah. No, I did mention this to Kate. <clears throat> right. Uh, uh, the first day of Christmas is a, as we all know, we perhaps don't, a partridge in a pear tree. tree yes. Right. The Christmas, uh, Christian interpretation of a partridge in the pear tree is the one true God. Hmm. Now, what a partridge in a pear tree has got to do with the one true God, I don't know. No one could say God knows. But <laughs> <laughs> that's what it apparently I, is. I sense a, a certain poetic license here. <laughs> no, well, I don't know. This is the um, uh, Schott's original miscellany. 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 Oh, miscellany. That's right. I told you I can't read. Uh, anyway, that's what it is. And this is, this is from there. Uh, right, two, second day of Christmas, two turtle doves. Yes, any, well, you won't know. I mean, it's, got, no, I mean, it's an impossible thing. It's the Old and New Testament. The two turtle, oh, I see, right. Two yeah. turtle doves are the Old and New... Apparently, this is the Christmas interpretation of it. Whoever made this interpretation, I don't know, and perhaps they'd had a few drinks at Christmas time as well. <laughs> Pardon? Doesn't it say that? Um, no, it doesn't. Just, yeah. This is just it. He said, right, and third third day of Christmas is... Is... I'm really, looking, I, looking at vague faces here. Yeah, I, yeah, I told you, I, I hope it's this. Three French hens. Oh, yeah. Three right. French hens and the <laughs> interpretation of <laughs> three French hens is faith, hope, hope and charity. charity. Yeah. Yes. Again... <laughs> How they get this, I don't know. We'll just do a couple more quickly. I won't, symbolic, do, I won't do them all. It? It's a symbolic thing. Uh, the fourth day of Christmas, it's four calling birds. Now I'm going to ask you all to sing this later. <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> four, four calling birds are the four Gospels. Mm-hmm. What were the four Gospels? Do you remember those the four Gospels? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. There we are. Well done, Kate. Right, uh, uh, the fifth 
I'm probably coming to the, some decent things here. Uh, fifth day of Christmas was the five gold rings, five golden rings, in fact. And that is the books of Moses. And we do, we get halfway through. Uh, six geese are laying. The, <laughs> the six days of creation. Yes. Six geese are laying is the six days. They must be terribly intelligent geese to lay such wonderful eggs. So I, don't, I'm not, I shouldn't take them account. This is very serious, really. Uh, the, the seven swans are swimming. Swimming is the seven gifts of the Holy Spirit, etc., etc., etc. I won't do them all. Right, who's uh, next? Dear Barry, if I can comment on that. Yeah, you can. That's what well, we're here for. That's the first time I've ever heard of an explanation mm. for the, uh, the things there. Yes. Yeah. I've never heard that before. No. Yeah, the, and we um, we sing it or we listen to it and we don't... We don't really think about what we're singing, do we? It's just a, the, the song that... Uh, it, to me, know. it's a sort of almost like a children's yes, nursery yes, song. Yeah. yeah. Well, in principle, it is, medie- isn't it? I, I always think of it as a medieval type of yeah. uh, old old Christian song. But uh, <laughs> it's symbolic, isn't it, all the way through? It's a symbolic thing of the Christian faith, but only if, of the Christian faith. Nine, nine ladies dancing are nine fruits of the Spirit. Ten lords are leaping. It's obviously the House of Lords, I would mm. think. You know, ten lords <laughs> are the Ten Commandments. And the twelfth one, twelve drummers drumming, the Apostles' Creed. That's right, yeah. And there we are. That's nearly all of them. Anyway, right. Mm. So, so, interesting. Right. You have, Alan, uh, have. A, a little story. This is, uh, it was in one of the newspapers. It was about a story about Paul McCartney and the Beatles and his time. It was, it was about Paul McCartney generally, but um, I, I've edited it down just to be about his time with the Beatles, which, right. which Alan is now going to read. And after that, I've got a piece of music, mm. which was the Beatles, but it's a piece of music where the Beatles were in the studio and Jimi Hendrix came in. And they they messed around and uh, made a track of Day Tripper with Hendrix playing the guitar and singing along with the Beatles, which is absolutely unique. And um, I don't know how I, I don't remember how I got it now, but I did, and I'm going to play it to you. Yeah, right. That's so, Alan, Paul McCartney. Paul McCartney and Beatlemania. The bedrock of McCartney's genius, not a word to be used lightly, was the extraordinary breadth of influences he drew upon. The Everly Brothers, Chuck Berry, the Brill Building Writers, English Music Hall and the Great American Songbook. The songs that influenced him most were the product of songwriting partnerships, Rogers and Hammerstein, Goffin and King, Lieber and Stoller, and with John Lennon, McCartney forged a partnership that he has described as nothing short of miraculous, one in which, unusually, both were composers and lyricists. While the songs usually originated with whomever can be heard singing the lead vocal on the records and and easily discerned by their mood, Lennon, direct, brimming with gusto, gusto sorry, <laughs> frequently sardonic, McCartney, melodic, sweeter, more carefully crafted. Each was a foil to the other. The work polished and improved, 
gestating in hotel rooms and buses as they toured, before being brought into the world by the expert midwifery of the producer, George Martin. The popular appeal of the Beatles was largely rooted in the strong definition of their individual personalities, which could easily be reduced to broad brushstroke caricature. John was the caustic one, George the quiet one, Ringo the zany one. Paul was the cute one, the most obviously photogenic, the best at public relations, the most at ease with journalists and fans. He was also, less obviously, the most ambitious and single-minded of the four, the de facto musical director whose perfectionism and sometimes hectoring manner would become a source of irritation to the others, not least John Lennon. It was McCartney who broadened the group's musical palette, balancing the blissful exuberance of songs like Please Please Me, I Want to Hold Your Hand, and A Hard Day's Night, with classic ballads like Michelle and Yesterday. And McCartney, on the albums Rubber Soul and Revolver, who would steer the group into their most adventurous and innovative period. The Psychedelic Years <clears throat> While popular legend has it that Lennon was the insurrectionary figure in the Beatles, it was actually McCartney who was a much more active and engaged figure in the London counterculture of the day. While Lennon was, as McCartney once put it, living on the golf course in bloody Weybridge, McCartney was a financial backer of the underground newspaper International Times, and the avant-garde Indica Gallery, where Lennon met Yoko. It was McCartney who in 1967 caused a national outcry when he became the first Beatle to publicly admit to taking LSD, despite having been the last of the group to experiment with the drug. No group better captured the sense of artistic freedom and the air of joyous optimism of the late 1960s than the Beatles, and the songs which emerged from this period and which indelibly bear McCartney's fingerprint are among the finest of his career. Fool on the Hill, She's Leaving Home, and Ellen Rigby. A mixture of English pastoral, childhood memories, the Victorian nursery and play for today conjured in a luscious marijuana haze. Above all, there is Penny Lane, with his litany of the commonplace, a barber showing photographs, a banker with a motor car, a nurse selling poppies, there beneath the blue suburban skies, as, as if seen for the very first time through fresh and wondering eyes. It is these songs, along with Hey Jude, Let It Be, and The Long and Winding Road, the Beatles' last number one, that will endure for as long as music is played. Okay, and here we are with Day Tripper with Jimi Hendrix along with the Beatles. Take it easy. 
And there you have it, an absolutely unique recording with the uh, Beatles and Jimi Hendrix. Never released, obviously. It was just something that they yeah. knocked up in the studio. It was remarkable, wasn't it? Yeah, it's just, you know, it's just a bit of fun for them. And I suppose the guys sitting in the box thought, oh, we record this. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, I've, I've got quite a few like that of um, Rolling Stones and uh, Jimi Hendrix and other people. Right. And... Um, you know, it's, I just managed to get them off the internet once and a few were given to me when I was, you know, I used to still knock around with some old musicians, even <laughs> now I'm 75. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, that's about it. Um, we've come to the end of our uh, November magazine. Uh, so uh, I'd like to say goodnight to everybody. Alan? Say good night. Good night to everybody. See you down at the pub. Well, yeah, I hope so. Yeah, and Kate. Good night, everyone, and have a wonderful Christmas. And uh, a bit it's, early. Not, it's not too. <laughs> I don't think it's too early now. Everything's sort of in the shops and beginning well, to is, sound, feel yeah. a bit more Christmassy, and there's music to be heard and so on. So um, yeah, have a wonderful time. Keep yeah. safe and um, have a lovely time. Yeah, they've got the lights up everywhere. London, the lights were there. And, oh yeah. yeah, it's all too early, isn't it? It you is. Know. I mean, still, you know, it'd be August soon before they'd be sort Christmas presents. But look forward to our next recording sometime next year, if we're not thrown out. <laughs> no, Good night, no, everybody. No day yet. Good night, everyone. <laughs> Good night. Good night.